Hi, Goatees. It's Priska, and you're listening to Two Horny Goats. As you may have already noticed, I am solo today. Um, I... I'm super excited. We've got two more episodes left in the season after today's. And one is our long-awaited finance diaries. And the other one is our finale. And I cannot believe we have gotten to the end of season four, but here we are. Um, I hope you all enjoyed our last episode, which featured Roxy and her partner, Ja. Ja is a sex therapist and a marriage and family therapist. If you have not listened to that episode, please go take a listen to that right now. Like right now. For me, I think growing up in a very conservative Christian background, listening to them talk about relationships and sex um, in such a candid, honest, easy way. Not that what they're talking about is easy, but the rapport they have with each other is really easy and it's really sweet and it's really beautiful. And I think, um, really had an effect on me and even kind of called to attention the ways in which I'm still uncomfortable talking about sex. So we're always learning. We're always growing. We're always improving. And this episode I think would be really meaningful to a lot of people. So go take a listen to that. And today I'll be talking to my partner, Abraham Kim, He has a degree from Talbot in spiritual formation and soul care. Before I met Abe, I had no idea what any of these words were and had never heard of this field of study, which kind of encompasses the health of your psychology, your spiritual life, and your connection to God. If you've ever met my partner Abe, I think the word that most people use to describe him is that he's very deep. And I know that that can... I don't know, vernacularly sound maybe kind of cheesy, but I've only known it to be true. And he is deep in that he's he's got a well of experience, a well of emotion deep within him. However, he's also willing to go deep with anybody. He's willing to sit there and it doesn't matter where you zig or where you zag in a conversation, he's going to be right there with you. And I do think that this is both a huge gift of his. And I I believe, I didn't know him then, that he possessed this when he was a very young person. However, I also think that it's been cultivated by this degree that he got and the work that he did as a spiritual director. Um, So I find him endlessly fascinating. The way that his mind works, the timbre of his voice, um, the cadence at which he's willing to share, all of it is always so interesting to me. So I'm very excited to share that with you today. When I first met Abe, he was actually probably at one of the lowest points in his journey with depression. Um, I think he was in therapy. And as he talks about in this episode, things were kind of at the point where they were getting worse before they were getting better. I remember being super young and super in love with this person and wanting to run in and fix everything, wanting to be able to run in and and be the thing he needed. But the thing with depression is it does not work that way. The thing with mental health crises and issues that you have is it can't be muscled out. It doesn't, it works counterintuitively from how we work in the physical world. And I think he was so great at both explaining that to me and I think it took a lot of patience and a lot of courage for both of us to continue in the relationship that we did. Um, It was really scary for me 
when he said he needed space because I took that to under, I understood that as space from me when I was able to finally understand, set aside kind of my anxious attachment and let him have space and time in the way that he needed it. I really feel like I got a chance to see who he was and appreciate him for who he was instead of just appreciating him as a potential partner. Um, So we've been through a lot of phases in our relationship. We've been together over 10 years and every few years it feels like we both change and we have to both make sure we're on the same track. Um, But I think what holds true is just our love and care for each other and respect for one another. And I'm really excited to share our conversation today Just as a content warning here, Abe does go into detail about physical abuse, loss in the family. And so if these are pieces of content that you'd rather not hear at this time for whatever reason, please take care while listening or feel free to skip ahead. Alrighty, without further ado, this is my conversation with my husband, Abraham Kim. I hope you enjoy. For the tone. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Abe. How are you Hello. this morning? <laughs> it's good to be back. Thank you for having me <laughs> again. Oh yeah, you're a recurring guest. Yes. You might be our first and only recurring guest so far. Wow. Wow. Two timer club. I'm honored. Where's my jacket? <laughs> that's. I think that's uh, after five. Ah, dang it. But uh, we've got it ready for you. It's embossed and everything. It's a stay horny. All right, then. Um, yeah, so excited to have you on the pod, everyone. Abraham Kim is here with us today. He is on break from his tour with, what show are you with right now? Uh, it's called Cambodian Rock Band. Cambodian Rock Band. How long have you been home now? I would say about two and a half weeks. This is your third location. Yes. Um, how is it coming home and taking a little break again? Um, it doesn't fully feel like a break because the job's not done. Mm. So, uh, I mean, it's good to get rest from uh, the actual show times and the stressors of performing and, mm. uh, you know, focusing for the show. But yeah, I mean, it's helpful, no doubt, to have these breaks. Yeah. What do you do to decompress? Not a damn thing. <laughs> I try not to do anything at all, yeah. uh, except maybe spend time with friends and family. Mm. That seems to be uh, the re- the refuel that is needed for, for me, at least. Yeah. And I wonder, like, when you come home from, you're obviously, I know in talking to you, you're looking forward to coming home when you're on tour, but what does coming home actually feel like? Like, when you walk through the door, does it feel, do you feel a little bit displaced when you first come home? I do. I absolutely do. I think, um, though it's home, it feels foreign. Mm-hmm. Every single time uh, upon return, it feels like uh, attempting to get familiar with the space mm. and the state mm-hmm. of of mind, body, and soul. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, knowing that there's a job or the next city, I can't fully, uh, I guess, empty myself. I'm still carrying, you know, some of the thoughts and, and the emotions attached to uh 
the show. So I know one of the things I had to get used to was letting you have time to decompress. Because I think, you know, I'm home and I'm just waiting for you to come back. I'm literally like a little puppy dog. And when your scent disappears, I freak out, you know. And when you come home, <laughs> back in through the door, for me, it feels so elliptical. You know, it, it it's almost like no time has really passed for me, even though the time you were gone feels very long the context is exactly the same, but for you, it's so different because you're going, you're experiencing all these things. Um, you're living alone in a context where basically our marriage doesn't exist, you know, and to then come back and have to re-engage with that. Did you find it increasingly challenging as time went on? Yeah, I did. I mean, it's it, the opposite of you when, when I come back is... Um, I do feel like things have changed mm -hmm. and that can be the external evidence such as our nibblings mm -hmm. growing taller mm -hmm. and for you um, hearing about maybe personal relationships that have developed. Mm -hmm. You know, I know you talk about it when mm -hmm. we, we talk about it um, when we're on the phone, uh, but coming back to the space, it seems more like I entered your space. Interesting. And then I have to make adjustments or assimilate. Yeah. 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 I noticed that usually when you leave for a run, like on our phone calls, when you first leave, you begin the kind of like period of being away of being like, oh, you know, it's still very much you and I going through it. And then there's this typically a turn within the first week or two where you're like, oh, we becomes not you and I, but we as in you and the cast or you and the crew. And I think the first couple of times I found that very jarring, you know, because I'm trying to be as engaged as I can with what's happening with you. But the fact of the matter is I'm not there. I'm not going through it with you. And so I don't know what that's like on your end where you're just kind of like out of necessity needing to um, be super present and be really available to everyone in front of you. Yeah, I think it's it's the uh, naturally... I think for all of us, we want to build a home wherever we are. Mm -hmm. So when it becomes more about the cast and crew, it's, I think it is a survival thing. Mm -hmm. And then personally for me, with us, it's not a complete detachment, mm -hmm. but I do have to maybe cut some of the, the threads mm -hmm. uh, that holds us. Because if I don't, then I'm just going to be complaining about why I'm there mm -hmm. away from you, away from friends away from home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then I redirect my attention, uh, it appears, to um, find that kind of uh, mm -hmm. home with the cast and crew. And we're figuring it out. I feel like yeah. every time you go, uh, we've had to kind of adjust and calibrate what works for us. What are ways we can, I guess, healthily be separated from each other, you know, healthy in an emotional way, healthy in a physical way, while still being there for each other. Yeah, I think, and I would say credit to us because that foundation is there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is what we have built and what we work on mm -hmm. that allows us to do that. And that's one of the things I love about you and have appreciated about you since we've gotten together is that you're always willing to, you know, to really go there, to really have the conversation at hand. And I think one of the things that you don't always have patience for is 
the more frivolous, um, shallow elements of things. You want to get down to the core of what might be bothering us, of what might be an issue, of what we want to move forward as. And I think that ties very nicely into this episode today, which is about mental health. And this is a series that we're calling Mental Health Bays because interestingly enough, both you and Roxy's partner, Jaw, have come from the mental health space. But I have a lot of questions for you that I would love to hear. I feel like I've heard in piecemeal ways, but would love to hear in your own words uh, about your journey with mental health because you come from a very conservative Korean Christian background where to my understanding, acknowledging mental health issues and seeking help for mental health is almost completely non-existent. So can you tell me a little bit about the background? Um, yeah, again, I'm a son of a preacher man raised in uh, conservative evangelical doctrine. And for the most part, uh, yeah, definitely had a stigma attached to it. Mm. And it was if, you know, if you have God, then why would you need someone else to help you through that so if you're struggling with any kind of mental illness that's probably because you're not doing something right religiously Mm. meaning like a quiet time Mm -hmm. where you read your bible and you pray or you follow some sort of curriculum written Mm -hmm. by another author pastor teacher Mm -hmm. so i i grew up with that and and um yeah i mean i was against it let's say Somebody with, say, schizophrenia or bipolar, where their mental health isn't just something they're struggling with, but actually like a very noticeable life affecting issue. Mm -hmm. What did church, what would church in your experience growing up have kind of treated that? Those two specific diagnoses would probably lead to the elders and religious leaders would, would, uh, probably say they were demon possessed wow so there was a religious causality in terms of it's a spiritual demonic kind of explanation yeah it's some some sort of evil force entering you know the person's mind body Mm. and soul Mm. uh, because of something they have done Mm. Uh, sin would have led them uh, to react and to be possessed. Mm. And uh, yeah, and I know you're saying that you didn't agree with the treatment of that. And before we kind of dive into um, both your kind of mental health struggles, I do want to just bring it back a little. Yeah. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles, more towards East LA. I grew up in Echo Park Mm. Elementary School and then moved on to Glendale uh, junior high, high school. So you're an L.A. boy. What are some of your earliest maybe like sense memories of growing up in L.A.? I mean, it was it was hard to fit in. You know, I was uh, the minority of the minorities. And mm. so you're picked on. Mm. So I had to fight literally physically at times uh, and also with words where I would have to argue back or uh, just stick up for myself. Um, So I didn't feel a sense of belonging growing up. And then moving to Glendale, uh, eventually I became the majority. So that was an interesting turn as well, where you feel the power and you kind of have the option to treat people equally or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, exercise your dominance as a people. Mm -hmm. 
becoming the majority, uh, it became seeking for our, our identity, mm. I would say, as, as a second generation Korean American, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with, with food, with uh, the Korean pop culture, meaning K-dramas and, you know, K-pop when, when it wasn't popular mm-hmm. and when we actually really needed to uh, search for those things to try to right. connect with our motherland and who we are, but also tying that in with being, an, you know, an American we, it was definitely not uh, excluding folks. Right. No, no, but no. The thing is, now you become protective of this mm-hmm. majority group. And so when a non-Korean would come in and, and, and messing with maybe one of our friends or mm-hmm. a smaller group mm-hmm. of our friends, then you would get a whole army wow. of these Korean-Americans trying to protect ourselves. Right. And that's when you feel the power because there were so many of us. Right. Still at the center of that is a is a very deeply loyal culture. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was passed down from first generation. Mm-hmm. And for the people that, that may know the history of Korea, I mean, it's the first generation went through a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think uh, to preserve our culture and race mm-hmm. has been tested throughout history. And so I think that has been passed down. Having been in a relationship with you for over a decade now, um, I've got to experience it from the inside, um, that loyalty, that that backing, you know, and it, it's really powerful. It does make you feel safe and it does make you feel that you belong, you know, and, and it's very fascinating to me because it's not something I grew up with. Even though we're all Asian, we have a very different cultural approach to how we protect our own because everyone does it, but it looks differently for everyone. Yeah, no, Absolutely. You know, as a people, they made they made a decision. I say they because, again, I, I'm not first generation. Mm. I don't think there was like this country meeting one, one right. day and was there like when we all immigrate to America, yeah. we're going to do this. Right. right. It was just an unspoken thing. And I think it's not unlike a lot of other people that uh, or uh, a peoples that mm-hmm. have been through similar things or atrocities, right. um, humiliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, elimination or attempts Genocide, to exactly. Right. So, yeah, I think there, there was just you, you just kind of look at each other. Yeah, they looked at each other and they're like, "Let's do this." Wow. Yeah. I know when you were really young, you were extremely shy. Do you remember if you put yourself into the shoes of your maybe like five, six, seven year old self? I know school actually thought that maybe you were mute at one point? Yeah, they thought I was mute. And do you remember what was going on internally? Did you feel overwhelmed or did you just not feel the need to speak? I think um, my design is, uh, I'm very sensitive, Mm. extremely sensitive, actually. So I think if you go back to five or six and I can remember some things, I lived in K-Town and K-Town was not the K-Town we Mm -mm. see today. So... Uh, a lot of violence, mm. uh, a lot of noise, mm. you know, whether it be ghetto birds or sirens, um, gunshots, uh, people just yelling. Mm. Um, and again, Koreatown being a little more integrated at the time. Koreatown was Koreatown was just more uh, business okay. structured. Yeah. But the actual residents, there weren't as many Koreans. Oh, Interesting. During that time. Where were the Koreans mostly living? I don't know. I, I, I should I should do some research, but I'm, I'm assuming it was, you know, the people that made 
or had a, a successful business in Koreatown mm-hmm. were pro- probably in the burbs somewhere and they drove in. I see. Uh, but again, and not to say that there weren't a lot of Koreans, it's just not as many as you would think. What do you think made them kind of thrive in L.A.? Survival. Mm. And this is common to, I think, every city that that you go in and you see a lot of Koreans. Mm-hmm. You see the first generation, I believe, they're like, okay, well, where can we find cheap land? Mm-hmm. It's just ghetto, it's hood. That's the first generation came in and they're like, all right, let's set up shop here. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. no one wants to do it. And it's like, no fear. You know, okay, you know, it's a, it's a good price right. to be here. And, and if anyone comes up and tries to take it away, mm-hmm. we'll defend it. Yeah. And that's what primary happened. example, right? 92 mm. it's Korean rights. And so um, that's an L.A. story. But I know there are other stories not maybe as big. Yeah, I think a lot of Korean immigrant families, they came to L.A. primarily 70s and 80s. Right. There's a big wave after the war. Yes. Um, but I want to hear a little bit more about what was your family's immigration story? My parents were um, set up as a, an a arranged marriage. So I think they, really? I believe they met twice before they actually went through with the ceremony. In Korea. In Korea. And this was God ordained. So it was through the church. I don't know if it was exactly through a, a church, but religious people. Were your parents both Christians in their childhood or did they convert a little bit later? Um, I believe they converted a little later. My mom is more truthful. Okay. <laughs> and then my dad would, you know, he kind of leaves that as a mystery. Like he was all, he all, always believed in God and, mm. you know, but I, I believe it was later in life. Your your father's a pastor and your mom is a pastor's wife. The harder job, yeah. She's, <laughs> she's the pastor's wife. I mean, I agree. But they met, they married. And then did, how soon did they go and start missionary work? I believe it was either the evening or the day after the wedding ceremony, my dad, he took off to Paraguay. The day after? Yeah. At the latest. I oh forget God. if it was that evening or uh, shortly after. I mean, yeah, shortly after my dad takes off to Paraguay and my mom joins him a few months later. Wow. Yeah. And so what were they doing in Paraguay? Missionary work, you know, spreading the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were doing what they uh, felt they were called to do as, mm-hmm. as far as uh, a job. Mm. And they were planning on staying there for X amount of years, but it got cut short. Mm. Um, the final destination was L.A. Okay. That was always their intended. Uh, always. Yeah. L.A. Mm-hmm. was the final destination and they wanted to immigrate to America. And I don't want you to share anything you're not comfortable sharing, but I know that during that time, there was a loss in the family. Yeah. Uh, their firstborn child, my my older brother that I have never met, mm. he, I believe, passed away from SIDS, mm. a sudden infant death syndrome. Mm. It's like three or four days after he was born in Paraguay. Mm. Um, and my parents have never told me, but I believe that's why the trauma of that led them to come to L.A. sooner than than planned. Honestly, the more I think about it, the more devastating that experience reads to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I noticed, too, that you are 
maybe the only person in your family who consistently brings it up. What is so important about continuing to keep that alive for you? The trauma that they experienced was never uh, debriefed, Mm -hmm. discussed, uh, sorted out. Knowing them and knowing first-generation Koreans, Mm -hmm. you don't talk about the emotional toll or the psychological toll or the damage Mm -hmm. to the soul. Research has shown like a child's death can lead to a lot of marriages falling apart. Mm. Because there is that blame. Yeah. So I bring it up because just in case they want to talk about it. And of course, I don't say, hey, remember your first child that passed away? Right. It's always uh, more of the along the lines of, I wish I can take you guys to see our older brother. Mm. Do you know where he, if we went back, do you know where he is? Yeah. Because if that can open up some sort of conversation, and it's a selfish thing. Hmm. Because I they raised my sister and I with that trauma. Mm -hmm. So imagine that, Mm -hmm. the fear, Mm -hmm. you know, and and just the hurt, Mm -hmm. uh, the overly protecting and the desire to control Mm. fate and your and your children that you have alive because you couldn't the first time around. You know, knowing your dad today, obviously I didn't know him during that time. He's definitely... I wonder what he was like before that, because I wonder, as a man of God and kind of being such a devout person in this life, how he could have processed that God would do that to them and their family. Yeah, I I, I mean, I wish that's the thing. I wish I can talk to him about it. Mm. Um, I can't speak for him. I can only assume and assess on my own. And this, I want to say, I love my dad. I really love my dad. And this is not a child talking shit about his dad. No. In my adulthood, and and like a lot of parents, they don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so they have, they damaged their children. Mm -hmm. I've come to terms and accepted that they did the best they could. Self-awareness and the awareness of your parents can help to heal. Mm-hmm. meaning my dad does suffer from uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Mm-hmm. He never got diagnosed with it, but I have talked to psychologists and psychiatrists mm-hmm. and in my own studies as well, and it's a very difficult disorder to manage, mm. especially, of course, the people around him, mm-hmm. my sister, my mom, myself, And so with that, yeah, I don't know what the way he made sense of it Mm -hmm. to this Yahweh, Mm -hmm. this Judeo-Christian God, whether he felt like he had to battle or just say, you know what, there is this more powerful being Mm. that I just have to submit. Mm -hmm. And he's the only one I'll submit to because by nature, Mm -hmm. with his disorder and his wiring, he will not submit to any other human being here Mm. on earth. And you bring up a really good point that this is, we are talking about your family, but the larger picture is that we're talking about generational trauma. Yes. You know, and and so what I'm hearing is the work that you've done to let go of the personal anger you have for your father. Sometimes anger is great, but you've let go of a lot of the like vitriol that you had towards your father, but you still hold 
in kind of a really good clarity the things that you're angry about in terms of what your parents are the product of and therefore what you then are the product of. Yeah. I think what's interesting about that then is that your father is a pastor who, for those not familiar with maybe the church structure, this is essentially like the priest or the rabbi. This is the person at the at the center of a church's theology. And it's like basically a very high form of leadership. But I think in addition to Korean culture where status is very important, um, not that other cultures don't have status, status is being important, but it's very highly lauded in Korean culture. So if you're a doctor, a lawyer, any sort of leadership, you get a lot of respect. And I think with pastors, that's no exception. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know if it is, if it's like that now, mm -hmm. but I would say even up to like 15 years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, Korea specifically, my, I think my dad was, he's the one that told me because he found it funny, but I'm sure he wanted it too. Mm -hmm. He was at the airport and he just saw this big group of people all suited up black suit mm -hmm. uh walking some uh, around this one person this one figure my dad thought he was uh, a gangster oh. like, a, like a mobster right before this figure went into the gate mm -hmm. they all lined up and they bowed and basically said have a good trip pastor whoa yeah so it was like 12 to 15 people escorting a pastor and you know, just showing that kind of respect. Wow. The boss is leaving, right? Right, right. But th for that level of, yeah. of uh, coordinated respect together right. is pretty startling because, uh, you know, again, it's uh, culturally different. Both of our dads were pastors, but your dad's church was how, how many people back in the day? At his peak, I mean, it was a few thousand. Wow. I mean, he was a, what we say, a playground celebrity, mm. right? So in, in the Korean community, our family would go um, to restaurants at odd hours mm -hmm. because we would get recognized everywhere. Wow. Yeah. And of course, if someone sees us at a restaurant and because religiosity is involved, mm. we would never pay for our meals. Right. Wow. Because they would pay for us. We've been offered uh, cars, mm. uh, offered homes. So was this political? Was it almost like... Um, if I buy you this, you can put a good word in for God or I can get you to do what I want? Or was it truly like more of a tithing type thing? I think it's all of the above. Hmm. Uh, it's case by case, person mm -hmm. by person. I think they all had different intentions. But everything you mentioned, yeah, all of the above. So then what was that like coming home? What was that like growing up with this man leading thousands of people coming home into your family apartment suffering from both generational trauma and trauma from his personal life. What was that like for you growing up in that space? Confusing. Mm. Um, imagine the toll it would take on, on a person, a so-called leader, mm. CEO um, at church during business hours. Mm. I see my dad smiling and, and caring, mm. but once we got home, uh, came up in therapy, uh, my, you know, psychologist or, or therapist asked me, what is the image you have of your father? And I said, it's just a closed door. Mm. So he was very um, distant. Mm -hmm. uh, he shut us off. So he was in his room a lot, but he would say, because he's studying, mm -hmm. 
but I think he was uh, struggling with depression mm. at times and extremely stressed out. And so we had two lines, eventually mm -hmm. phone lines, landlines, mm -hmm. where if it was an emergency, we would call the other line. Wow. Yeah, from our living room to his room. Oh, my goodness. Okay, got yeah, you. And he also struggled with anger. Um, what did that look like? It would be violent at times. So, again, uh, the polar opposite of what we saw during business hours. Mm. And so it was very confusing. But I also had a reverence for my dad mm. and thinking that he was gifted. Because mm. how do you, how does this happen? Right. If you're a complete asshole right. or unaware and you don't have uh, the ability to draw people in. Like, then what are you, right? Right. So he was that. How did your mind process this? Because you say you had a reverence for him. You're seeing him gifted on the pulpit. You're seeing him gifted in that people are membership is up at the church. And yet you're being treated by this same person in a way that's physically harmful. How did your brain process that at the time? Did you feel that? your punishments or let's just say physical beatings were somehow ordained by God or deserved in some way? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, it just led me to feel unworthy. Hmm. Yeah, as a child, I couldn't do anything right. Hmm. And I, I, yeah, it was, and I, and I also suffer from chronic depression too, so... I was just at a very dark place from a very early age. Mm. And it was just, the world was dark. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I didn't really, I, I don't think I had said to myself that God is allowing this to happen. Mm -hmm. It was just every day. <laughs> mm. mm -hmm. And I find it so fascinating that after this childhood, adolescence, under your father, experiencing all these things, that you stayed in church and you stayed in church leadership. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, formation. I think um, I didn't know anything else. Hmm. So um, what else are you going to do? It's simply that. I was like, this is a family business. Wow. And I, said, I never told myself that, but looking back, it was just like, well, what else am I going to do? I didn't really challenge it. Until after high school, but yeah. Until after high school. So it felt like the easy, morally correct thing to do, kind of? Yeah. And I would say I experienced uh, God. Mm -hmm. I had my God moments. You yeah, know? right. Um, but I don't know how true they were. Mm. Maybe I, f I forced it. I'm not sure. I don't I don't know. But I, what I did feel was real. And I thought maybe um, I did have a calling to be like, the worship leader in high school yeah, and the, the president mm -hmm. of the youth group. Um, but I struggled, I know. And, and it's kind of by default. Mm -hmm. People would think that, uh, that if the pastor's holy, then mm -hmm. the entire family mm -hmm. must be right. Right. And so I remember, um, junior year of high school. So that, you know, every, every season or term, um, people vote mm -hmm. uh for you know the cabinet the oh, president and vice president this really and, yeah. and so someone has to nominate 
just the general youth congregation, someone will be like, I nominate this person. Wow. And then another person seconds it, and then uh, a vote happens. I guess it makes sense because it's so massive. Like, yeah, you have was, to have a democratic process. Yeah, that's, that's the system was in place when I got there. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't anything new. Junior year, I was going through a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, someone nominated me and, and got the second to it. And you're supposed to give a little speech. Oh, boy. That sounds like your favorite thing to do. Oh, man. I was <laughs> so excited for it. I went up there and I said, please don't vote for me. Really? Yeah. And I walked off. You ugh, that I, actually I'm not I'm not surprised by that at all because that tracks with who you are today. But you like back then said that. Yeah. How did people respond? They were shocked. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think it threw them uh, into confusion. But I knew I wasn't ready and... Also, I was just, I remember feeling angry. I don't know why. Because yeah. it was like, I didn't ask you were trapped, for this. Kind yeah. Of. But then senior year, mm-hmm. um, it happened again. What? And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm ready this time. So the speech was along the lines of, if you guys believe that I can be a good leader, I will do the best I can. And wow. Like that. And, and then I, I was a and youth, then you group, got it. youth group president. Yeah. That's okay. Because I was going to ask you, did your dad pressure you to go into church leadership? Did he pressure you to do, but your entire community was essentially pressuring you to do it. Yeah. Expecting you to do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, my dad never pressured me to become anything inside the youth group because mm-hmm. he didn't know what was going on. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, he's just focused on the KM, which mm-hmm. is the Korean ministry. So there was a youth group pastor, mm. which is a different department now, mm-hmm. which is more EM, English ministry, English speaking. So he didn't really know the details. It wasn't really under his purview. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, that came a little later mm-hmm. uh, with, with pressuring me to join the family business, but mm-hmm. at, at least... During that time in high school, um, he never pressured me to become the youth group president or lead worship or anything like that. That's really interesting because you would think that would be, you know, the logical thing he would push you towards. But he was so focused on his ministry and just expected you to, like, be an extension of him. Is that essentially what it was? With the disorder that he suffers uh, with, Mm. suffers from, I think... um, yeah, I mean, it was just make him look good. It mm-hmm. wasn't the the duties. Mm-hmm. It was just if word got to him that I was not perfect, mm-hmm. meaning, I don't know. Um, yeah, I got caught smoking mm-hmm. a cigarette. Ooh. I think it was, <laughs> I think it was like eighth grade. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> a, ch- a church member saw me. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the public somewhere. I thought I was hiding, but it was it was a kid who ratted me out to his mom. And his mom, you know, told my dad. And then in the morning, because they went to morning service, which is 5.30 a.m. every day mm. except Sundays. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom came first and she's like, well, your dad's going to kick your ass, basically. Whoa. So I just got dressed and then walked to school, which was like an hour. Because I was like, fuck that, yeah. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm not waiting around to get, yeah. yeah. My dad shows up during PE class. Stop. Yeah. <gasps> Someone's like, isn't that your dad? Oh, my God. And then he's smiling and he just gestures for me to come towards him. I go and he basically was like, I'm going to kick your ass when you get home. Oh, my God. With the smile. And then he left. And then I got, Babe. I got beat. 
when I got home. So that was more image and, you know, how it made him look. The brainwashing was from very early age and up to like high school, whenever I would get so-called punished, mm. the, the three questions, it's, it would be, you know, how do you think God looks at you right now and, mm-hmm. and thinks of you right now mm-hmm. as you're sinning or, or you got caught with this mm-hmm. or doing this? And then he would say, how do you think this will make me look? Wow. If people found out. Like in the same breath. Yeah. And then how do you think people will think of you? Mm-hmm. So it's always an image thing more than duty. Yeah. I just want to take a second to say thank you for sharing so openly because I think very sadly you aren't the only family to experience this, but so many people don't share because it's scary, it's uncomfortable, it might even feel shameful. Like there's a lot of reasons why this is very difficult to talk about, but I appreciate you being so open about it. And I think that even in the way you're speaking about it, it's very evident how much work you've done and how much thinking you've done on this and how much truthfulness seeking you've done for this period in your life. And I'm really excited to kind of dive into how you came from this background and then found basically a pathway and a career and an educational career in the mental health space. So we're going to take a little pause, a little break. um, But I want to thank you for being so present and so honest. I'm here. No, I mean, communicating is key, right? And and for your listeners out there, my dad's not like that anymore. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I think maybe that's why it's easier for me to talk about too, because I have forgiven him, Mm -hmm. though he has never apologized. Mm -hmm. Because now I have the option to do, um, to play out the way uh, I feel our relationship should be. Mm. Because I can be an asshole to him too then. Mm-hmm. My dad is is different and it allows me to process things differently. And, and I think one of the reasons why I can speak openly mm-hmm. and hopefully to the younger generation that we can talk about it uh, with more um, vulnerability mm-hmm. because it was, you know, my generation, the second generation, the way we dealt with it. And I never told my friends that um, my dad was beating me mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'll go to school and, and some, you know, someone got it from their dad, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's like, man, my old man came uh, at me with a golf club this time, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. And then the way we dealt with it was like, oh yeah, like golf club, that's nothing, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, have you ever gotten a chair thrown at you? Wow. You know, yeah. it was like, it wasn't Pain the... Olympics majority of us got beat it mm. was it moved on from on your knees and holding books wow uh you know raising your hands it, it became very physical so that's the way we dealt with it but hopefully as we're you know sharing and and being truthful mm. and also again respectful i think that's i don't hate my dad i mm. don't like, he had no idea what he was doing and again understanding his trauma mm-hmm. um yeah, that hopefully the younger generation can look at their parents. And if no doubt, I'm not saying accept physical abuse. It's no. none of that. Like, I would say get help. Mm-hmm. Talk to people. Um, talk to you, your friends. Uh, 
mental health professionals mm-hmm. um, and, and be vulnerable to process this sooner than, mm-hmm. than later like I did, though I am grateful I did it later. Like mm-hmm. I lived so many years in internal like torment. Mm. I think that rage that builds up inside you, this injustice that you're being physically beaten, that rage that builds up inside you, it has to go somewhere. And I think for you, it went further internal. It did because, um, again, I suffer uh, even now, dysthymia, which is chronic depression. Mm-hmm. And depression is anger inward. Mm-hmm. So it it went deep in. Mm-hmm. And it was torture. It was torture. and. I didn't want to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, this part is tough to talk about because I can't, it's a blur, but there were times of, of um, two seasons where I really wanted to end my life. Mm. And I would say there was one attempt. And, you know, it's at my age now, I wish I, had, I, I can like literally talk to that younger self mm. and show him love and, uh, you know, show him that he was worthy of living, mm. of existing. But yeah, it was, it was just uh, too many years of pain. Mm. So again, hopefully uh, with, with this discussion with you and to any of your listeners and if they want to share it, like uh, I just, I, and if you're going through it right now, like, mm. If it's any of any assistance or help, mm-hmm. that is one of my motivators to mm-hmm. be open. It breaks my heart to hear it every time. And it breaks my heart now because, I mean, you're my partner. You're the person I love. And it's hard to fully fathom what you've been through. However, I know that you are who you are because of all these things that have happened to you. You know, I feel fortunate that we have your story and that you're sharing I'm sorry that you went through what you went through yeah me too mm-hmm. you know and it's not self-pity it's again the work that I have done I'm mm-hmm. sorry to the kid that had to go through it mm-hmm. 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 and I want to protect him you know it wasn't really you know it's the goodwill hunting moment but it wasn't his fault and, and that kid lived with guilt and shame and mm. and thinking Mm. and truly believing Mm -hmm. that all the wrong that was happening Mm -hmm. uh, in in the life of his father and and was his fault. Mm. And that was a complete lie. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And we will take a quick short break and we will be right back. See ya. nodding along while listening to two horny goats we we totally get that we might not always agree on everything but we're aimed at approaching each conversation with as much safety balance and compassion as we can if you're enjoying this pod please share it with a friend share it over lunch share it while you're in the car together share it when you don't want to talk just listen to us so that we completely infiltrate your mind body and soul we love you spread the good word stay horny
I think there's so many fictions that we inherit that weren't ours. And a lot of them have to do with exactly what you're saying. Capitalism, patriarchy, heteronormativity, cisnormativity, white supremacy. And I, I do love to read, but I don't like to read these particular fictions anymore. Hi, Goatees. Hope you're enjoying today's episode. Last season, we had the honor of interviewing poet, activist, and educator Genevieve Ting. If you haven't heard this episode yet, add it to your queue now. For the vast majority of my life, I was socialized as an Asian American woman. I still feel a great connection to like the femininity that lives inside of my body. And if womanhood was like this house that I was sort of like indoctrinated into, you know, for the longest time, like I knew the blueprint of the house. I knew that house well. I started to identify as non-binary and I was like, I don't want to be in this house. I want to be in my body. Genevieve has a knack for using language to slice through convention to create new, beautiful things. It's intoxicating. It was a privilege to sit down with them and learn more about the intricacies of their gender identity journey. I I feel like I'm so much of me is dying as I'm rebirthing myself. There, there is the very easy narrative of like, I'm finally becoming the person I want to be and that's great, but there also has to be space for like the messy reality, which is like, I'm also dying yeah. <laughs> and I'm also like putting myself to rest all the time. And it's okay for me to like be mourning myself because it happens and transition also means change. We hope you take a listen. Head to twohornygoats.com slash episodes slash queerness to listen now or find the episode on Spotify and iTunes. Okay, now back to the show. Welcome back, OTs. Again, we are joined by my very handsome husband, Abraham Kim. Where is he? <laughs> Where is this handsome? Stop! <laughs> Who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Um, hi, how are you doing? How, how, are, how are you feeling after the break? I'm okay. I'm, I'm better. I have to use the restroom, so I'm a lot better now. <laughs> Human needs, right? It's the, the little things. The free bladder it's syndrome. the little things. <laughs> you know, we ended on a very heavy topic, and I just kind of want to bring it back a little bit. Um, you've told me that you often find yourself as the number two right-hand person to people in leadership, primarily in the church. Can you tell me how you end up in that position so often? Yeah, I think psychologically it's it's the attachment that I have— I've been a leader mm-hmm. um, many times mm. in church form and in, in the, you know, professional business, mm. wanting that number two to support me. Mm-hmm. And of course, again, you know, the obvious, right, mm. of wanting to be there for my dad mm. and, and knowing how lonely being number one can be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I don't want the responsibilities of a number one. It's just... I've come to realize my nature is that I want to be an advisor and support Mm -hmm. and stay strong Mm -hmm. for the number one because I felt it lacked in my own life. Huh. Yeah. So you were naturally kind of suited to it because you were being what maybe you you wanted when you were in positions of leadership at times. Yeah, there's that. Mm. And then, of course, again, you know, wanting to be that that number two in my dad's life Mm. my mom did an excellent job no Mm -hmm, doubt mm -hmm. but also we're korean Mm -hmm. so you know there's that uh gender roles Mm. unfortunately but i believe it's getting better um with our people as Mm -hmm. as we are progressing but back then i mean my mom was assigned uh to the kitchen right more so and to counsel women Mm. only but she couldn't be on the pulpit and she couldn't 
teach formally. Can't, can't teach or preach. That's mm. with culture and also the conservative stance on women teaching men. How do you come to understand that today? I always thought it was wrong because I had a lot of one-on-one conversations with my mom. Mm. And she is a deep well of knowledge and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people didn't know that. I didn't quite understand why she was limited. Mm-hmm. And then I also have a sister mm-hmm. uh, that was forced to be more submissive. Mm-hmm. And, and knowing my, you know my sister. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. come on now. like She's the best. She's not that. No. And to see her struggle with certain things in, in the role of our family as the eldest daughter Mm -hmm. and how she was treated and how I was treated as the youngest male. Mm. I just always felt it was wrong. To this day, I think uh, we're managing it better as a family. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I do know of church, I've left the church. It's been a few years, but even up to maybe four or five years ago, Uh, some of those church roles, uh, women cannot, in the conservative circuit, cannot teach or preach mm. men. Right, right. They can teach and preach maybe towards women. Women and, of course, children. Right. Yeah. And then um, hospitality and everything mm-hmm. else, but uh, the main gig. Yeah, it never, I, I'm growing up in the church, that never made sense to me. Can you tell me what is spiritual direction? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what I come to know of it and, and what I've studied mm-hmm. on it, it's it's a very old practice, mm. very, yeah, with, with the Desert Fathers. And if you go, I, I don't want to get into all the history, um, but if you're interested, I would say research it because it, it is fascinating. It's what maybe people consider spiritual director as a soul doctor. Mm. Um and what I've come to understand through the practice of it is just being with somebody. Mm-hmm. Simply put, like just tracking, mm-hmm. being present, showing compassion, mm-hmm. um, and and in direction a session, which is pretty uh, similar to a therapy session, though it's not mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. spiritual direction. I know. What it's not, it's not therapy. Got it. If someone's seeking spiritual direction, what what would they be seeking? What what I guess kind of I know outcome is probably not the right term, but what are they looking for if they're seeking out spiritual direction? Yeah, to my understanding, um, in in the the Christian form, mm-hmm. as some of you may know, with the greatest commandment mm-hmm. is um, to love God and to love your neighbors. Mm-hmm. As you love yourself. Mm -hmm. And so what I've come to understand is that dialogue uh, within the three and also um, in communication with the Trinity, which would be God the Father, God the Mm. Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in a session, uh, why someone may seek that is they want a deeper conversation with Yahweh, Mm -hmm. with this otherness. In spiritual direction during those sessions, which I have been honored to sit in a director will guide and lead this directee mm-hmm. to unpack things of the soul mm-hmm. so they may have a deeper connection with self, mm-hmm. with neighbors, meaning people around them. Got you. Um, and then again, 
Yahweh, God. God. So it's kind of that triangle. Yeah. And and we were talking about how the conservative modern church often eschews mental health support or treatment in any way. So where does how did you come upon this coming from that background? What was your journey to spiritual direction? Someone invited me to a info night at uh, Talbot School of Theology, which is the grad school at Biola University gotcha. in, in Southern California. They knew me and, and thought that it was very, it, my design would fit into this program. Hmm. And, and keep in mind, Biola is a Christian university, mm-hmm. so their grad school is a seminary. Right. So most people, when we say, you know, we're at a wedding or whatever, we're like, oh, he went to Talbot. They're like, oh, seminary? Like, right. you know, you went for your MDiv and, and he has to kind of explain. Yeah. And MDiv is what pastors usually get mm-hmm. uh, as a degree. So I'll, and, and that's about the same. Right. And it's like seminary. <laughs> Dude, no, man. No. <laughs> but why not? Right. Go to the info night. Just mm. get the information. And so the director of our uh, Institute of Spiritual Formation and Soul Care gave a presentation, a little lecture, and I just connected. Mm. And I had, from that night, I had like three days to apply, Whoa. which was madness. Wow. Right? So you do all of the, the transcripts and essays and, and et cetera. Gosh. Also, goatees, nobody procrastinates like my husband. <laughs> I thought I was a procrastinator until I met Abraham Kim. <laughs> so I can well, only as, imagine. As a creative, I'm not saying I am creative, but as, as a creative, uh, you guys know what's up. Man. Yeah. And yes, I do. I do procrastinate. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. But you had three days to turn in your transcript and, and you know, get all your essay, personal essays in and whatnot. But what made you, I know you had a conversation with someone at, during that info night. What made you want to apply? It was the question that I've been asking for <laughs> years. Yeah. No, what the presentation. Oh, uh, what, what the presentation was showing. Was showing. And I, I don't. Briefly, to briefly explain, I was so against the religion, the religiosity of Christianity. That never made sense to me because mm-hmm. that has a lot more people involved. Mm-hmm. And when you have people involved, you have politics involved. Mm. And you have power struggle. You have money. Mm-hmm. You have status. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said before, I, I feel and still believe that I had this spiritual encounter with the, with this otherness mm-hmm. and I, w- I wanted to seek that out mm. so I found myself saying in in my spiritual journey I kept asking myself well what's wrong with me because mm. I wasn't this perfect Christian mm. and so in the presentation there's the justification when when you accept the terms mm-hmm. that you have been justified mm-hmm. that what uh, maybe people commonly know as being saved mm-hmm. there's that that part happens in your spiritual journey gotcha and then in the middle of sanctification mm-hmm. where things are happening uh, to you and your soul and you're being transformed mm-hmm. um, and what I was taught like you be you where you learn to be become a good Christian got it and then glorification mm-hmm. which is the other world, mm, right? Where mm-hmm. you become perfect in mm-hmm. form and basically, again, what people know as 
heaven. Right. Like, all right, there's this, I know the moment I decided like, hey, I do want to pursue my relationship with Yahweh and this Jesus figure and his teachings. Mm -hmm. And I know there is this end result. Mm -hmm. But what happens in the middle? Interesting. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. that's the spiritual formation. That's where you're being formed. Got it. Why is it so hard? Mm -hmm. And there's very little guidance for that in in the modern day church. Yeah. In the modern day church more so is, is... this is why you're fucking up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no like, so this is how you address it. Right. On the real, instead of uh, this prescription you you get at the end of a sermon. Right. What does that process really look mm-hmm, like? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the way the director of the, the program explained it, he, he was like, it's okay to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Because I grew up like, you can never doubt that. Right, right, right. That right. middle part, that sanctification period, that that gap, you're never supposed to talk about. And it's so, it's usually such an isolating process where you, you can do a lot of the things like, you know, you can convert at a church, you can, um, you can tithe in front of whatever, you can attend a, an assembly together. But the actual process of doing your quiet time or struggling with your your personal sanctification is is completely done alone, and it's very isolating because you don't really know. It's embarrassing in the in the Christian realm to say that you're struggling. Yeah, because that means you're doing something wrong. Right. There must be this so-called sin in your life that's preventing you. Right. From doing your quiet time, praying, and reading the Bible, that is preventing you from getting closer to God. Right. It's on you. And that kind of then becomes a feedback loop to guilt and shame and whatnot. Guilt and shame, yep. And so I think I kind of understand a bit more of giving your background, giving your rearing, giving your formation, why spiritual direction in the way it was presented in that assembly was interesting to you. I think I think you've explained it really well. What then was your feeling when you got into the program? Spoiler alert. You got into the program and you're starting to attend and you find out that one of the requirements is for you to go to talk therapy. Yeah. So, um, again, I, I, my degree technically is spiritual formation and soul care. Mm-hmm. The soul care part is where I studied and practiced spiritual direction. But the primary thing was spiritual Ritual. formation. Got you. And that's an integration of uh, psychology, spirituality, which theology and philosophy. I see. Okay. And so, you know, the theology part was something I it's not that I have never heard of these teachings. Philosophy as well, I kind of uh, dabbed mm-hmm. in it um, mm-hmm. previous years. Psychology though. Mm-hmm. And then again to your question, the co-curriculum was to uh, sit with the therapist. Mm. And this was second semester of my program there. Again, it was one of the classes that the director of the program was teaching mm-hmm. and lecturing. And, and he said, you know, there might be times during your, your spiritual journey that you're struggling and, and the conversations you have with God, they're just not working. And pastors and, and so-called teachers in the church, they're not equipped. They're not trained to do this. Hmm. So you need this third person this uh, trained professional, a therapist. And I was livid. Oh, no. I was literally like, I felt my body heat up. Right. Because I was like, you're wrong. 
Yeah, I was like, all all I need is God to fix me. Did you feel like it was a bit of a bait and switch to require that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I knew it was coming. Oh, okay, you did. Walking because everyone it. talked about it like, oh, we have to enter therapy. But his explanation oh. to me bothered me, <gasps> man. Fuck. Yeah. What would you tell yourself if you could go back and see yourself that day? What would you say to yourself? <sighs> Just calm down. <laughs> you don't know everything. Right. And that's okay, too. Mm. I know you're scared. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be scared. You know, I thought I had a pretty good, I had a pretty good roadmap, a, a, a good grip on, yeah, on my plans right. and and who I was as a person, yeah, my identity, um, and so I thought I was okay, mm-hmm. you know, and and I was like, what does a therapist have to do with my spiritual connection to God? Right. Uh, that evening, it was an evening lecture mm-hmm. after the after the class. I really considered dropping out of the program. Fuck. Yeah, because I was like, this is heresy. This is, this is some bullshit. Right. So what then? Because we know you ended up at therapy, but we also know that you were livid and in this moment where you, were, you literally thought it was heresy. What were those, I guess, I don't know how long uh, transpired between your first session and this, you know, this lecture. What transpired during those weeks? A few conversations with classmates, um, and I just really started to think, and I had to evaluate why I was so upset. Hmm. And it came to that conclusion, right? Like, why am I even here? Hmm. What am I searching for? And the answer was, right. Hmm. I'm here because I don't know. Wow. It was a very humbling moment. And that kind of shows the culture, if you're able to talk to your classmates. It's the people that are seeking out this kind of degree. Yeah. They're kind of maybe like-minded, like-textured. Right. Bit. So I felt safe with them. It's a cohort. So we, again, this was second semester, so I had some time with uh, certain people. And they, none of them were, and if you know spiritual formation folks, mm-hmm. none of them are very directive. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to give direct advice like this is why you should do it Mm -hmm. it was you know along the lines of well if you open yourself up to maybe (laughs) or i wonder if you would see it differently after your first session Mm. things like that right so Mm -hmm. i'm like okay i know i'm scared yeah i don't know what it's like i've never been in therapy wow And, and then you know uh the i think it was like a week or so later again another lecture where it was the challenge from from the director of our program said, you know, it's it's going to take some courage to, to complete. And we, I forget how many sessions uh, we were supposed to do as far as uh, meeting the curriculum. Mm-hmm. But that was the step. I was like, let's just say it was like 60. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, it's only 60. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just like a year, basically. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, all right, I'll just do it then. So what were your first few therapy sessions like? Man, I was guarded. If I look back, you know, but my therapist was, man, she was just a gift mm. to me. Uh, again, it was supposed to be for like a year for the school program. I ended up sitting with her for like five years. Mm-hmm. I know she had a good read on me. I mean, this, she does this professionally. So I'm thinking, like, I'm going to go in and, and test her out. Mm. <laughs> okay, stress test it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you go in, we sit there, 
and we, I forget what we talk about. It's just brief, you know, uh, maybe overview of my past or who I am at the, at the at present day. Mm-hmm. And she goes, "Well, after hearing you, I've decided to take you on." And so <laughs> I'm thinking. You, you decided. decided. <laughs> I'm deciding whether. Yep. Yeah. All right then. <laughs> it changed the dynamic a little bit for you. Uh, sure did. What was your first breakthrough moment? Hmm, wow, there's so many. I think um, the biggest one. I forget how far along we were. It was within the first year, I would mm. say. I was so broken. And you know what they say about therapy. People who have been in therapy, they say it gets worse before it gets better. Interesting. So I was feeling the worse. Because mm, you're kind of like disassembling things. Yeah, I mean, you you got to, um, you have to deconstruct. Mm-hmm. So when, when that was occurring, uh, you know, you're taking, you're being pulled apart and, and um, all Oof. the things are being uh, laid out individually for you to re- start rebuilding. So you become kind of an amorphous blob. Yeah. <laughs> so unpleasant. Mm. So I'm looking at myself there. Mm-hmm. And I'm in session and I start to tear up and I, I just look at my therapist and I asked her, what's wrong with me? Mm. And she looked at me with the most compassionate eyes. And I think she knew that I was ready for it. And she goes, you mean... Clinically, mm. in, in the DSM book, clinically, you want to know what's wrong with you? And I was like, yes. Mm. And then she laid it out and I felt so seen. Wow. And so known. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, man, it's me. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about that? Mm. And, and I was so broken. I was like, just do what you have to. Mm. Let's work through this together yeah you know one of my favorite things about you and you know not to brag but you're the best um (laughs) but one of my favorite things about you and and this goes for so many things in your life you might start at the at a very cautious conservative point your starting point might be there you might have a lot of fear you might have a lot of um anger even against something a lot of resistance i would say but then you often don't let that stop you like you will process it and walk into it and oftentimes you end up at a further point than I ever could have imagined maybe even with like theater acting you know you were pretty resistant towards it and now you're literally lean into the practice you know and you you understand it in such a deep way and I feel like what you did with therapy you know you applied the same thing that you apply to everything in your life where you're honest about the resistance that you have. Because also a lot of people aren't very honest about the resistance that they might have and they might mask it with other things. And um, and even though they're not cool with it, um, they just kind of like, you know, fake it till they make it and then don't really make much progression. But you have the ability to, yes, be very honest about the resistance and the anger and the, the, uh, the caution that you might feel. But that's not the end point for you. You will walk through it and you will often find yourself deeper and further into it than anyone could have imagined. I've come to realize <laughs> <laughs> that I don't, I don't know a mm-hmm, lot mm-hmm. and that has helped me. And I'm not going to just attach myself to everything new. 
Sure. Yeah. But I no. think that there is that when I am faced with some sort of disruption or challenge for something new, mm-hmm. and in my process, once I'm convinced, mm-hmm. I'm I am willing to learn because really life you can't know everything Mm -hmm. and you know of course you want to have a stance and a position in certain things but also expanding the humanness I believe it does require one to open Mm -hmm. and, and to receive new new information. Mm -hmm. But what I like about that is that I I think we have this idea of like open, what that looks like, what that means. It's like hippy dippy, we're open. But that's in a lot of ways, a little bit of an empty stereotype. Yeah, no, I I know what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And that's why, again, it's, it's, I won't attach myself to everything new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The challenge is there. Um, I need to process it in my own way. And I have Mm -hmm. rejected other ideas and, Mm And forms, um, but once I am convinced, mm-hmm. I want to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the test for that is always uh, the condition of my heart. Though as cheesy as that sounds, it's I don't live with me against the world mentality. That's not healthy. Yeah, or yeah. anger and resentment towards people or myself. Mm. I think that's an indicator, right? Yeah. When you're like, you know, they are wrong mm-hmm. and I'm so right, mm-hmm. I think is an indicator that uh, maybe you, you're you stopping your, yourself from learning mm. about yourself and about others. And again, it's not to accept all terms and uh, all ideas um, and thought. It's just as you learn more, and I think people that have pursued this, it's somewhat easier to listen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just need to listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those decisions will be made. Yeah. And I think I think when you were a younger man, you probably, you know, ha- had a little more arrogance, had a little more a little more of that. Like, I, I know everything vibe. But I think you going through this program, through this process, through this growth, um, it didn't serve you anymore. And you recognized where you were incorrect at times and when you didn't know something and that continued to strengthen your resolve to keep learning. Yeah, it was humbling. It's it was hard. I mean, it's still hard, no doubt. Like, it's you know, you feel that kind of embarrassment when you think you knew something. Mm-hmm. But what I realized, I used to think that uh, you know, and justify certain things and say, "Well, I'm a perfectionist. That's why mm-hmm. I have to execute in certain ways." But um, the grace that I've given myself is that I'm I'm a human being, mm-hmm. and perfection does not exist. Mm. Um, after you finished your program, which was basically four years long and now is offered as a a PhD. But at the time you walked away with a master's degree. Four years. Four years. Oh my goodness. And we met right in the middle of that. Um, And I remember you telling me basically, you know, my mental health is my responsibility and I I never want to put that on you. I'm doing what I need to do to make sure I'm healthy so that I can come to a relationship in a very healthy way. And I've always really appreciated that. But Post-program, when you were done with your program, you basically went and became a spiritual director for an L.A. church. 
tell us a little bit about that. From my point of view, um, having come from kind of the startup world uh, and also kind of watching sports with you, <laughs> um, you were kind of like a team consultant almost. You were almost like a like a corporate coach in certain ways, but more with more of a spiritual psychological bent. Um, that's what I saw from the outside. Can you give our listeners just some insight into what you were actually doing from a practical standpoint? So I was um, in session with the staff mm-hmm. of of this church in LA, and um, you're right, it was that kind of role mm-hmm. uh, that you mentioned. I know that the lead pastor hired me mm-hmm. to improve the mm-hmm. performance of the staff, mm-hmm. just like a you know for for a team mm-hmm. or for a startup, uh, why they would involve someone in that field. So I would, sit, I would sit with them for 45 minutes. I think in the beginning, it was every three weeks. Okay. Like a uh, rotation. A rotation. Mm-hmm. So I had about, I would say a little, I think under 10, but mm-hmm. uh, directees. Yeah, okay. directees. And I mean, it was a great time. Mm. What did your program prepare you for? And what didn't your program prepare you for? Um... What it prepared me for was I realized that the harder people to sit with are the people in, in the higher leadership positions. Ooh, okay. Yeah, uh, specifically pastors <laughs> mm-hmm. and people that have been a so-called leader for a very long time. Yeah. They were just like me. Got you. Right. In the beginning of the program, like, no, I really don't need this, but my yeah. pastor's telling me to come, so I'll come. Yeah. It's like, no, I don't, I, I mean, I don't, like, you can feel the disrespect towards me. Interesting, because it's resistance. Yes, resistance. It's a power, a power struggle? Yeah, it's definitely a power struggle, and I was okay with that. I mean, that, the program prepared me for that. Okay. And same with uh, school at Biola. So we sat with some pastors, but also un, uh, undergrads. Mm. And this is a Christian school, so... They wanted to go to a Christian school. That's mm-hmm. why they're there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if that's the case, you know, a higher percentage of these kids are leaders at their church. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of resistance. There'd be times where, you know, a direct, a direct <laughs> E would be um, preaching to me. Like, right. Well, you know, Abe, this and that. And <gasps> trying to throw theology. I'm like, wow, man, it's so obvious that you're <laughs> deflecting and you yep. are scared right now Ooh. of being vulnerable. And so... There's a lot of prep to that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, uh, the fear and, and the stigma attached to being that vulnerable and mm-hmm. knowing that spiritual direction does have some psychology involved. Mm-hmm. What it didn't prepare me for was like a therapist, mm-hmm. there is a code of ethics. Right? Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't share what happens mm-hmm. or what happens in sessions mm-hmm. to anybody. Right. I didn't right. even share it with you. Yeah. I would just say today was a hard one mm-hmm. or man, there were some cool moments today. It was right? pure confidentiality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm operating within the church. So, uh, you know, my agreement was uh, I didn't want to be in staff meetings mm-hmm. for multiple reasons. I don't want to get into that, but one of them is, I'm I'm seeing I'm sitting with right. these people and they're being vulnerable with me. There's a conflict of interest. I don't want them to feel uncomfortable during these meetings, and you know that's one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, what it it didn't prepare me for was how I had to navigate through like on a Sunday because I was also in 
band. I was oh, a worship team. I was a music director as well. Yeah. So I had two roles at, at that time. So I would be there every Sunday and I would see some staff members. And, right. Um, I wouldn't say it was awkward, but I, I knew that I had more of the uh, decision to make on how to react. Got it. Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. we couldn't like, I can't ask you, hey, how are you doing today? Yeah, right, right, right. you know, you don't know what but I would just wave. Yeah. Or if someone seemed really um, maybe distraught or disturbed yeah. that day, I would just give them a quick little yeah. you know, pat and go, I can't wait to uh, hear that next se- session. Got it. Just to kind of create a boundary. Yeah. yeah. And I know that you had a very good friend who, you know, I, you know, you bringing spiritual direction to the church you were at, it was kind of the hot new thing. And I know that you had a very good friend that was like, oh my gosh, can I, can I sit with you? Can I, you know? And you basically said to him, if you sit with me, it will forever affect, it, it will affect the context of our friendship. Yeah. It, I straight up told him, um, if, if I sit with you mm-hmm. and this may sound harsh, but I was like, then we can't be friends. Yeah. But I broke it down a little bit. Like I can't hang out with you. I mm-hmm. can't, it's just, it's like a code. Th- there's a code and, and there is a conflict here. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's just not going to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And that's what, uh, you know, we learned. Mm-hmm. I studied that while, yeah. Preparing to become a so-called spiritual director. And bringing it back to kind of um, your childhood, our childhood as pastor's kids, we've seen so many pastors that have power tripped, that have um, maybe even gone a little insane. Um, we've seen pastors in our lives that uh, have mistreated people, have stolen money, have abandoned their families. We've seen all of these things. Um, because there's kind of no real rubric for how to be a pastor. I mean, other than going to get your MDiv or, or you know, get, uh, what do you, uh, ordained. ordained. Yeah. So as long as you're ordained, you, you kind of, you kind of have free reign. There's no committee that's testing you every year. There's no licensing committees, you know, um, there's no one even really, unless you implement this yourself, giving you real evaluations, you know, um, it's, it's kind of up to you. So it's very ripe for uh, corruption and it's very ripe for loneliness. It's very ripe for um, self-implosion. And so I think that the more I saw what you were actually doing with spiritual direction, the more I recognized how necessary it really is, you know, how important it is to, um, especially when you were sitting with pastors, because, you know, we both grew up with dads who were constantly on the phone with people just spilling their problems, letting them know their issues. Um, A lot of trauma dumping that they experienced. Um, They've attended many bedsides, uh, deathbeds, funerals, uh, weddings, uh, births. They, They attend so many things they've counseled through divorce and most pastors don't have psychological uh training the way you did um no look, they don't yeah and looking at where we are now and looking at what spiritual direction the change that the effect that you've seen it have on people's lives how do you think it would have affected say your father's life i mean i wish he he had some someone to talk to that's all it is um he was alone in it. Yeah. He was alone in leadership, uh, people looking to him for answers. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, there's this attachment theory of how maybe uh, a, a Christian may view God is how they view their father, mm-hmm. their earthly biological father. Mm-hmm. And they would transfer that mm-hmm. idea to God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
But I also think that applies to pastors as well. Mm -hmm. See, if you see the congregation of a church, Mm -hmm. I do believe that a majority of them is the pastor reminds them of their father. Mm. It's this father figure, Mm -hmm. right? It's this man that's telling you how to live your life, um, giving you direction and Mm -hmm. and guidance in this hard life. Mm. And so all that falling on on one person. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, sure, there are some co-pastorships and... But typically, uh, it's one person. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of weight. And, and mm. you know, if, if my dad had someone to talk to and just, you know, dump mm-hmm. some things, like, it. sometimes that's all you need, like, mm-hmm. just to unload that burden. I think he would have been, I think it would have been extremely beneficial. Mm-hmm. To say the least. To say the least. Mm. So you are now not currently directing anyone as of as of this time. And I know that after we got married, we moved up to Ashland. And um, that's kind of when you halted your practice for that time period. Yeah. But how do you take some of these skills um, that you learned in spiritual formation and soul care? How do you take some of these skills and apply it, especially backstage with your cast members? cast and crew members you know i've come to realize and it may sound boastful but i had to be um honest about it i think there was a a natural position in life in this world for me to hear people Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. even in high school and whether if it just landed on me because i was a a preacher's kid Mm. um even in high school i people would come to me and we would have one-on-ones and I would hear about these horrible things that have happened Mm. in their life. Mm. Um, A girl got uh, raped Mm. and she was telling me I had no idea how to handle that. Mm. But I was just there and I I cried with her Mm. and I listened to her and and then I never saw her again. Mm -hmm. This was at school. Whoa. Um, We knew each other but we weren't close friends but mm-hmm. I she needed someone to talk to and she's like one day she's like can't talk to you and, mm-hmm. and it was like during lunch and then she told me and then I think she obviously felt extremely embarrassed right. and just avoided me and I didn't know how to handle that right um huh and then throughout you know before uh, I entered school uh for it I found myself being the listener huh yeah. And, and just um, sitting with people right. one-on-one. And so first semester of, uh, I'm sorry, not the first semester of school, but the first semester of the actual spiritual direction track. Yeah. I think this was like, I don't know, the third year. The first book that we got was The Art of Listening. And I was <laughs> like, wow. Ooh, yeah. You know? So I was like, okay, I, I think... Now I'm like pretty convinced that yeah. this is for me. Right. And now I'm getting some, I'm getting guidance and uh, tools and and, yeah. and how to navigate through it and, and how to uh, maybe ask more of the, I won't say right, but like what the person needs. 
Right. It's kind of like it sounds a little bit like Harry Potter, you yeah. know, going to Hogwarts. Like exactly. before he was at Hogwarts, like he was, you know, he was making all this magic shit happen. But he gets to Hogwarts and they're like, oh, no, there's a way to actually utilize this magic ability, you know? Yeah. I, I compared it. Yeah, that that's a great example. And also uh, X-Men. Mm-hmm. We used to joke around at school. Like right. our director of the program is, you know, Dr. Xavier. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then we're just not to say we have superpowers, but like. You know, just the gift of maybe listening. Yeah. And and how we can use that against somebody, too. Oh, When yeah. you remember and then you just turn it on them mm-hmm. like a year later because you, you listen mm-hmm. and you remember it and you can use it as a weapon, which is really jacked up. But um, learning to, yeah, just like uh, identify and, and be more intentional of how mm-hmm. to direct a conversation. Mm-hmm. And so to your question with castmates and crew, like... Mm-hmm. When I hear someone talk, and this has been with not just in sessions, um, spiritual direction sessions, but it is like listening to music for me. It's like listening to a track. Hmm. It's their story. Mm -hmm. And it's lovely. Mm -hmm. At least with spiritual direction, there is a time limit. Okay. Yeah. And there's a a time to check in and check out. Mm -hmm. And with with castmates and friends and and, um, anyone that I've, I come across I do want to hear their story Mm. I'm really interested Mm -hmm. because humans obviously are very interesting yeah Um, but setting boundaries I Mm -hmm. would say uh, where I can't be there for everyone all the time yes especially when you live together 24-7 and you're working you know so many hours a week Um, but I noticed that your castmates and your crewmates they benefit from just really having a listening ear not someone who's trying to speak and waiting, you to know, talk. to talk, yeah. um, but really having someone listen and see them. And I've seen the very powerful effect that it has on the people around you. I mean, I hope so. I, I'm truly honored that they would share certain things with me. Um, and again, I, I will protect that. And it matters to me. I just I love it. And they're very lucky to have you. And we are very lucky to have you on Two Horny Goats. Goatees, now you can see this is why, I mean, this is the man I love. You know, um, he's got a really fascinating mind, brain experience, and he's always willing to go there. You know, a lot of people, I think, who meet you, they feel uncomfortable almost sometimes. Um, and they're like, whoa, you're going so deep already? You know, there you get a lot of that commentary. But I think what I love about it is no matter where, I'm at no matter where we are we can always we can always go there and it doesn't have to be deep but often it can be deep you know and you always leave space for it you never make anyone you talk to feel stupid you never abuse the safety of that vulnerable space of creating that vulnerable space for people just to wrap it up what are you excited for we're going to go to Seattle in a couple of weeks what are you excited for spending time with you Um, I'm sure your listeners know maybe if you mentioned it earlier but if not Priscilla is joining me for the entire run yeah. at Seattle, which is about, you know, six weeks in total. Whereas the uh, previous uh, stops, um, she came to visit and yeah. it was hard mm-hmm. uh, for both of us. But I'm excited to spend Seattle mm-hmm. uh, or spend time in Seattle with you. And it's the last stop of this tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm also excited for that as well, that, you know, for for this run, it's the last stop and we can, uh, you know, maybe say like we're truly going to get some rest because mm-hmm. there's nothing uh, 
for us at least scheduled next year mm-hmm. and um we can you know hopefully find ourselves saying to each other you know job well done yeah well i'm so happy to have you home and i feel very fortunate to go out with you and the 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 cast and the crew for this last stop because we started it together and we're ending it together it's very exciting um i love you very much i love you thank you for doing this thank you for having me do you remember the ending of our podcast uh does it have anything to do with the name of the show kind of (laughs) okay i'll i'll kick it off and i think you'll know it oh yeah all right that's right okay, 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 okay ready have a horny week our lovely goatees. And remember, stay, stay.